0: Welcome to the Marketing Stir Podcast by Starista, probably the most entertaining marketing podcast you're going to put in your ears. I'm Jared Walls, Associate Producer and Starista's Creative Copy Manager. The goal of this podcast is to chat with industry leaders to get their take on the current challenges of the market, but also have a little fun along the way. In this episode, Vincent and Aj catch up with Scott Andrew, CEO of Retail Service Systems and CEO founder of Rugged Holdings. He shares his less than legal beginnings as an entrepreneur and how realizing early on that being, quote-unquote, unemployable, as he describes it, was one of his best assets. He also walks through the particulars of managing several companies at once. AJ deals with the snowpocalypse, and Vincent learns a new word. Give it a listen.
1: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Sturista's The Marketing Stir. I, of course, am your host. Vincent Petrofesso, the vice president of B2B products here at Starista. Who is Starista? San Antonio based. We are an identity marketing company. We have our own databases, B2B, B2C. We help our clients target those databases, get new customers, email marketing, customer acquisition. We have our own DSP called Adster. We can help execute media for you, OTT, CTV, Vinny P., that last part's just me. Anyway, that is what we do. Ladies and gentlemen, email me, e, vincentatstarista.com. That is how confident I am that we can help you. I just gave you my email address on air. Ah, oh, the other thing I'm confident about, I say it every episode, is my partner in crime. I'm riding shotgun. The co-host, the CEO of Starista, ladies and gentlemen, AJ Gupta. What's going on, AJ?
2: Hey, Vincent. Pretty exciting day today. Came back to my house after about, I don't know, maybe, yeah, I guess it's been about a week now. So we had the whole flood situation going on from the snowpocalypse in San Antonio. Uh, apocalypse. <laughs> I haven't heard that term. The uh, floors, well, they're not replaced yet, but it's uh, clean again after all the water damage. So back, back at home, and uh, I, I guess home and office these days.
1: So. Yeah, well, it's glad. Well, I'm glad you're back home, and I hope that the floors get repaired. It's no place like home, so it's good to be back. I know you were staying with your in-laws there, and thank goodness that they were able to take you in, but it's just not the same, so I'm glad you're back there. And I'd love to give you a little credit on something, AJ. Yeah, I'd love oh, to give yeah? you some credit. Yes, so yesterday you uh hosted well you you were part of a panel that i hosted for the direct marketing club of new york the dmcny.org great nonprofit organization that i'm a board member of take a look at it but aj gupta here the ceo of starista uh, as well as chad engelgau the ceo of axiom great panel our biggest recharge series It was about identity, identity graph, identity marketing. You did a fantastic job, sir. You did a great job.
2: Oh, thank you. You did a terrific job hosting it, and thanks for putting it together in the first place. It was uh, always a pleasure speaking with Chad, and uh, I always learn something new uh, from Chad about yesterday. The big takeaway was why it's called an identity graph. The graph in the identity. So,
1: yeah, and in those cases, you know, me as a moderator, I, you know, I try just to listen, but I also, I know, I have to ask questions and and gather the questions from the crowd. But I was just listening. I was learned so much from you, and uh, you know, Chad, great, uh, you know, great CEO there, a great leader. Would love to have him on the podcast one day because we have great CEOs, we have great leaders, CMOS, VPs, and there's another one today. This, I really want to dig into this because AJ, this is really the first, you know, really like entrepreneur, right? A lot of people have that entrepreneurial spirit, entrepreneur, but you know, this gentleman, we're talking to multiple companies. I, you know, I would do like a nine minute intro if I had to go through all of the companies that he is a part of or started or created, you know, let me, Get this intro right for the good people listening at The Marketing Stir. CEO of Retail Service Systems, CEO, founder of Rugged Holdings, Rugged Entrepreneur, Rugged American Spirits. Now you're talking my language right there. Rugged Spaces. I love it. Ladies and gentlemen, I say serial entrepreneur, put your hands together, virtual hands, if you will, for Scott Andrew. What's going on, Scott
0: as much as I can fill in a day, but thank you for having me. It's really good to be here.
1: <laughs> it's great to have you. You know, uh, what'd you think of that introduction? We got most of it right?
0: Oh, it was great. It was great. I, was, I, I wondered what you were going to say, and I'm just, <laughs> I'm just a, a redneck from Western North Carolina that grew up <laughs> in the mountains, so I don't expect for things to be right, and as an entrepreneur, I know they're never going to go the way we planned. But you you make them into something great, despite whatever challenges are in front of you and build really good teams and you did a great job very enthusiastic.
1: (laughs) Well, look, we're excited to have you because there is, you know, I want to hear so much more I love that just a redneck from well, (laughs) you know that uh, I didn't put that in the intro you said that yourself, Uh, I just want to let the good people know I did not mention that but. Scott, tell us about, I want to learn about yourself first, right? And then I want to talk to us about the companies, uh, yourself. That's the first question. Then I'd love to learn more about how this started. People just don't wake up and they're like, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, right? So tell me a little bit about the current companies under your portfolio
0: there. And it does date back. I grew up in an entrepreneurial household, so I was fortunate in that respect. I kind of, I had an example, you know, people would rather see a sermon than hear a sermon. And my father was an example of a hard working, rugged entrepreneur that maybe so much so that he 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 limited himself by being as good as he was as an individual, which I learned a lot about that too. And so after I got out of school, actually my first business was illegitimate. I was a bootlegger and it just so happened that I went to college at the time where the drinking age was 18, but it turned to 19 while I was in college, and then it turned to 21 while I was still in college. Uh, so, it was a, But there was an instant demand in a marketplace where people weren't gonna be have something taken away from them they already were used to having. So it was an instant bootlegger opportunity. So my first money-making business was a, being a bootlegger. Um, but our second business was a business we started in college called College Life. that was a, a newspaper in the college market that did pretty well. And so I, I was I knew at a young age I was unemployable and that I was gonna be an entrepreneur. I did work in mergers and acquisitions and corporate finance. With, it was uh, nation's bank back then, today it's Bank of America for about four years, a little over four years. And then I made a jump into, uh, into the beverage wholesale business with a small equity position and helped build a company pretty big there. That was where it really started. And then it's evolved to today, retail service systems. Our whole we have holding companies today that are that target uh, different businesses in different ways. Retail Service Systems was the first one, and we were really trying to disrupt franchising. Um, what we saw in the franchising world was um, the relationship between franchisor and franchisee is very caustic in most industries, and it's a great industry for fixed business models like Chick fil A they'll probably never change the Chick-fil-A sandwich. They may add a menu item, take away a menu item, but, but it is plug and play. It's, it doesn't need to change. It doesn't have to adapt all that quickly. Yeah, they shut the inside dining down in their restaurants this year, but they made the drive-through work. And, and they, so they did have to pivot, but, but the model itself will not necessarily need to change that much. What we identified is a lot of industries in the franchising space needed to adapt, they needed to change, they needed to change product lines or marketing methodologies, because as you guys know, because you're so specialized in the, the data world and the digital media world, yeah, you know, that changes so fast. So it affects every industry. And we saw that the franchise industry didn't have the right community dynamics for the models inside it. It needed to change rapidly and evolve and we, we, we thought we could disrupt that. We have, and we have uh, box drop mattress and furniture. We have bio care services, two totally different industries that needed disrupting in the franchise sense. We're working on a media and advertising one now with ETSU and our Rugged ETV network, which is a part of one of our other holding companies. So we have a franchise holding company to scale and disrupt industries in the franchise space. We have Rugged Holdings. That's, the, that's a business designed to scale but scale businesses that aren't intended for franchising like rugged American spirits and Tennessee Hills and, and more traditional companies where we work with entrepreneurs in them and partner with them to help them scale their company, but it's not intended to turn to a franchise. And then we have a real estate development and construction company and that holding company developed property.
1: And how you, like you said, it's an entrepreneurial spirit there. I want to touch upon, you know, uh, how you knew you were unemployable Is you know is it just because you know you beat of your own drum uh so talk to me about why, why early on you were like you know what i i what did you study in college
0: uh well i studied chemistry the first two years because and i in the in the book the first chapter really is fervent work ethic because i think young people today are often taught You'll find what you love and you'll never have to work a day in your life. And that's a bunch of crap. Mm. Um, yeah, and, and, you, it, and it's just weird that people would think that way. And I remember at a, I think it was a Thanksgiving dinner, my grandmother asked me what I wanted to do because I was getting ready to go to college. I was a senior in high school. And I, and I just, I hadn't really thought about it, but all of a sudden I said, well, I think I'm going to be a doctor. I'm good at math and chemistry. I'm going to major in chemistry. I'm going to go to medical school. And I was really just trying to impress everybody at the table, especially my grandmother, and all of a sudden, everybody thinks I'm going to be a doctor. So I start out majoring in chemistry and do that for two years. It's hard as heck. I got labs three nights a week. I'm not got buddies joining fraternities and having fun. And I am not smart enough to make good grades and being a fraternity at the same time. So my first two years of college, I had no social life, and I made pretty good grades. But one day, I was like, I don't want to be a doctor. If I don't want to operate on somebody and they die or their elbows messed up for the rest of their life, and Majoring in something I don't even really like, so, and I made that choice on making my my grandmother happy or my family proud. So I switched to business my junior year, and I found out the classes were a lot easier. I didn't have labs, and uh, the tests were a lot easier to give generic answers to because you didn't have to come with some equatable answer mm-hmm. and. I all of a sudden could join a fraternity and have a lot of fun my last two years in college. I still graduated in four years, but I had a lot more fun the last two years than I had the first two. And I did know I wanted to own my own business um, going in. And I did I worked for four years just to get a high-level view of finance and mergers and acquisitions in what was one of the biggest banks in North Carolina at the time. But but the term to me, unemployed was just I'm too creative and I like to. I like to set my own goals and pace. And uh, I, I could see in the few jobs I had early on that the pace was too slow for me. And i it drives me crazy not to move things at a fast pace.
1: And before AJ uh, goes, uh, what fraternity, Scott?
0: Uh, I was
1: a Sigma Chi. Ah, okay. I was a Sig Ep, Sigma Phi Epsilon. I was a, we did one podcast where uh, right AJ I asked and we were in the same fraternity, you know. But Sig Chi is great, you know, it's a national fraternity as well, like uh SIGEP. Awesome. Go ahead, AJ.
2: Yeah, and now Winston asks that to every guest. So Well, if they say fraternity, if match. they
1: if they say fraternity, <laughs> if if you if you were a Sigma Phi Epsilon, if I was a Sig Chi, that's a bond for life right there.
2: That would be a ten-minute conversation. Right? Ten
1: minutes—that's it, right?
2: <laughs> yep. So, Scott, how do you manage all of these companies? I I, I just run one company, and it uh, sucks up all of my time. So I'm trying—I'm trying to learn how to manage multiple things myself. So, I would love to kind of know how you are managing your various uh, positions and holding
0: companies. It's a great question, and and it is an evolutionary process. And I, I spoke about learning lessons from my father. He was a he he um was an all-American basketball player at Elon University. And he went to graduate school at Chapel Hill and was a graduate assistant basketball coach under the legendary Dean Smith. And then he played Pro Ball in Italy for a couple of years, my first two years of life actually. But um, when he returned to the States, he got into sales and ultimately got into a position to own a company and 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 Built it to a pretty big level. Um, Still a small business, about 40 employees. But he's so smart. He's on my board today, one of my best friends. And He's more of a a small venture capitalist, if you will, because he sold that company years ago. Um, And he's 80 now, but still sharp as a whip and gets around good. Even those knees and hips have all been replaced because of basketball. But he... I learned from several different places. A book that I'd read had a, a chapter about Henry Ford on team building. I was building teams at my college level of life. And my father was great at building a company, so smart at math. Uh, but, it, but it was like his baby. It was, it was my, my sister and I were the only two children in the family, but we knew his business was like a third child that took a large part of his time he was dedicated to it and he made it a success and he had employees to be responsible for and i learned to drive a forklift riding around with him when i was seven loved working with him, um and held all kinds of jobs there growing up to learn the appreciation of work but it was so much his baby aj he dedicated uh he was so committed to it and he made it successful that he really didn't learn to delegate uh real responsibility with decision-making power on a high level to teams and people, he, he, he micromanaged a lot of it. And it took so much of his time to micromanage that that was the main company he was able to build. And I, I not early, early, not my twenties, but in my late thirties and forties, I I'd become really good at team building in such a way where I realized I could hand over. In our companies, we don't only empower people to make mistakes. You'll actually get more trouble if you don't make mistakes because we don't think you're pushing the envelope or doing enough than if you do make mistakes. And when people make mistakes in leadership roles in our companies, we found out they'll do about three times as much to make up for the mistake and often create a better, bigger result from what they learn coming out of the mistake. and we empower them at a level where they run divisions of the company as if it was a company inside the company. And in almost all our companies, we have an equity level opportunity for people. So uh, those, that, those top three to 5% can rise to the top and be financially rewarded very well. And, and if it's not equity in that company, we'll spend companies off from it and put them in that position. And it's, it's not. A, it's not a skill you wake up with one day. It's a skill that evolves. It probably took me fifteen years to get good at it.
2: That's that's great. That's some good advice, Scott. Uh, and you know, all of your companies. I'm sure you look at them as your children as well. But is there a favorite child you have, or something you feel particularly uh, passionate about more than others?
0: It's, it is so. My wife and I made a promise about 15 years ago, AJ, that we were going to center our business interests moving forward around businesses that would empower entrepreneurialism and in, in people. And at, at Retail Service Systems, it has a two-word mission statement, empower entrepreneurs. And we own a building up in Ohio. It's a two-story building. But when you go under the awning of the building, there's a giant sign and it says RSS, but in much bigger letters under RSS, it says empowering entrepreneurs. So every day that our customer service and accounting and legal teams and operation teams go to work there, the first thing they see walking in the building is empowering entrepreneurs. And they have hats that say it that hang in their office. And, and it's we constantly remind them of the message, but it's, it's not hard to forget. It's not a, a five paragraph mission statement that change, that's supposed to change your life. It's just what we do is empower entrepreneurs. And and for Daphne and I, that is such a fun mission that we've got hundreds of stories that are success stories from from not a nickel in your pocket to now making a half a million or more a year from, you know, I know you're from India. If you read the the book, The Millionaire Next Door, it says uh, foreigners who come to America are 11 times more likely to become millionaires than native born Americans. Because generally they come seeking a better opportunity or better education, a better opportunity. And when you're seeking something that you're hungry for, you're more likely to do something with what's in front of you. So I love empowering entrepreneurs because it's a constant um, creative atmosphere that's always gonna have success stories in it if you're if you're dedicated to doing it right. So it never gets boring. You know,
1: and Scott, I wanna dig into the Service systems. Oh, sorry. Um,
0: didn't totally answer your question because I do, I love them all in their own unique way and they all empower entrepreneurs, but scaling franchises, we get to see hundreds of them. And, and here at BioPure, where I'm, I'm in the BioPure headquarter building right now, one of my friends since the fifth grade, Jim Wilson, he's the CEO of BioPure, I hired him away from Eastman Chemical. He was the director of global procurement for a $10 billion Fortune 50 company. And I hired him away three years ago, and I said, I'm I'm only going to pay you half what you're making, but you'll have some equity. And in three to five years, if you learn to eat what you kill, you'll be making double what you're making. And more importantly, both your sons will become rugged entrepreneurs in our models, and it'll change their life and your family generationally. And it didn't take five. It only took three. He's done an amazing job with BioPure. One of his sons owns a BioPure franchise. The other one owns a box drop franchise both of them make six figures and his whole life has changed dramatically he has more control of his time he enjoys what he does and he's watching his son to start to excel as entrepreneurs so when you can build stories like that into people's lives how can your business ever be boring because a lot of young people think you what we said earlier learn to do find what you love and you'll never work a day in your life that's just baloney All businesses have hard work in them. And oftentimes, it's work that's not fun that you don't want to do today, but you got to do it. You got to love and be proud of the ultimate result. And our ultimate byproduct is the success of business owners. So I just, it thrills me every day. So it's, RSS would probably be my favorite. but, But in case the other people hear that, I love those businesses too. <laughs> R- RSS is a tall, long-legged, beautiful blonde brunette business, and I just have to be proud of her. Um, the other businesses are good too, but they may not be as pretty as her. <laughs>
1: yeah, 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 I know. I uh, We're talking about like, I was like, right now I do have a favorite child because I have a four-year-old and I have a nine-month-old. I could just do more with a four-year-old. So I do, They're, I love both of them, but yeah, it's, well, Scott, I wanna talk about, so let's get into that rugged name. I love that name. And you. you so I wanna talk about that and I wanna talk about the name behind it. I mean, you, you did touch upon it. You said your father was a rugged entrepreneur and I did rugged, I wanna understand, tell me about the meaning behind that. And then I wanna talk about the book you wrote rugged entrepreneur Uh, and then uh well so first tell me about the name
0: well it's a name that i kind of had for about 20 years maybe a little bit more and i always wanted to write a book but i was just taking notes and i was just cataloging stories of millionaires billionaires when you're in that the bank position i was literally you're getting to know the, the story of those business owners who you're helping do mergers and acquisitions So back in my early 20s, I was cataloging those stories and I was drawn to books by entrepreneurs. So I was always trying to categorize entrepreneurs and I created three categories, Um, a specialized entrepreneur. And that's somebody who generally has to have a very specific education and a license and continued education, a lawyer, a doctor, a financial specialist, an accountant, some consulting and IT specialist they're all entrepreneurs and they all have some ruggedness to them, but that's a specialized entrepreneur who's, who's going to start at least in a certain lane may or may not get out of that lane. Then you've got what I call, or that's a professional entrepreneur, specialized professional entrepreneur. And then you've got what we call corporate entrepreneurs. And that's usually somebody who's more targeted for a plug and play fixed franchise model. They've spent a good part of their career, 15, 20, 25 years or more, making a good money in a corporate scenario, climbing a corporate or certain corporate ladders. And they just decide one day they, they want to own their own business, but they, they really want the, the security of a structured environment where they don't have to figure it all out. Maybe they're not the most creative, but they plug in and they, they, they play well and they own their job. They should be proud of that. They're still entrepreneurs but they they don't necessarily have to figure out a lot of things or be as disruptive and innovative. And so that's what we call a corporate entrepreneur. And then rugged entrepreneurs, the catch all that fits kind of into all the other ones where it's not as plug and play. The market's always changing. Competition is always coming and going. You got to, you got to be able to innovate and disrupt yourself and your company every two or three years, or you'll, you'll find yourself falling behind to some of your competitors or all of a sudden your industry changes in a year and you weren't able to change with it and you might be closing the doors. You know, 50% or more small businesses that start don't make it past the fifth year. So it's a tough world to start a business in and you absolutely, if you wanna make it, you. a lot of people think they're rugged for starting a business but a real rugged entrepreneur gets way past the five year mark. Now the business might look totally different in year six than it did in year one. But you, Rugged is, is about being able to deal with all the changes, all the negativity, all of, of the craziness of the world that's coming. It's going to be chaotic and you got to learn to organize it. And only Rugged Entrepreneurs figure those things out.
1: No, I, I love that. I love that meaning there. And then what, your book, The Rugged Entrepreneur, which, you, you know, our listeners, you get to go uh, where you consume books, go to Amazon and purchase it. What made you put all that to paper? Pen to paper on that one.
0: Uh, my the the enjoyment I got from studying entrepreneurs—they all have such great stories and lessons. And I think what really happened for me, Vincent, was I was after college, I had read a book about American history. In a it was a broad historical book, but it had a section on George Washington that talked about how dynamic he was as an entrepreneur and I I didn't know that and he was probably one of the wealthiest people at that time but he he was in agriculture and in tobacco he was a surveyor at 17 he was the surveyor of Culpeper County and what 17 year old gets to be the surveyor of a a major county in America today and he was a, a soldier and a horseman but he became an entrepreneur um, because of a death in the family, and he was taken over land that he had helped survey, and he, he became a farmer, and at that time it was tobacco, but tobacco fell out of favor, and he moved to hemp for making ropes and timber for making ships. started a shipbuilding company and a lumber company. He, he ultimately moved into grains, and then that led him into whiskey, and he was the largest whiskey distiller in America with a five-pot still system. At one time back then, making about eleven thousand gallons a year, so he was a very rugged entrepreneur and built that built that real estate empire out to about eighteen thousand acres. But I learned all that after college, and I thought I was mad because I thought I took American history in college, and I'm pretty sure I paid attention, and I learned dates and battles and president and you know offered to be king. But I was like, somebody should have. I should have. I got passionate about that. I already knew I wanted to be an entrepreneur, but I realized, you know, America absolutely is as, as bad as some things can be at times, always good and bad going on. But America still is such a special place with free enterprise and mm-hmm. capitalism and it's definitely under assault. You know, you, you, I like to say the word free enterprise because it sounds better in today's climate than capitalism, but it really means the same thing. But our our culture, as challenging as it is, still one of the best places in the world to start and grow a company and build a company. And I saw a void in the higher education system for teaching entrepreneurialism that's led to some partnerships with universities. So I just had a deep passion for it. And I thought if we don't start teaching it and promoting it in America, it it could weaken to the point where people don't understand how beautiful it is. And And I feel, I felt agitated that, I love it that we're a place where foreigners are 11 times more likely to come and become millionaires than Native Americans. but at the same time, that's a tragic shame because we should be teaching everybody. That opportunity should be here for people like A.J. who come from a country like India that's got a very ambitious culture and a very strong family culture. That should always be dynamic. But boy, we're not doing a good job teaching it to people who are born here and grow up in a system. And they don't realize how good their opportunity is compared to what other people are born into around the world.
1: Yeah, yeah you know, it's, uh, you know, that's something that they don't teach in college. I mean, I graduated college 20 years ago with business and communications, but nothing about being an entrepreneur. Uh, and you're right, that wasn't in my history book either, Scott. They talked about, I knew about the, the, this great general and the sneak attack. Uh, you know, at, at night for George Washington, even wooden teeth, right? Doesn't that come up? But nothing about tobacco and uh, just especially be a whiskey uh, generator. So, yeah, that's uh, interesting stuff.
2: Yeah, completely agree with you, Scott. There are opportunities in the US and there could uh, be even less regulations in some aspects, but it's definitely there's a lower barrier to entry to start a business in the U.S. than most places in the world, for sure. Scott, we have a crack team of researchers here, and we discovered you may own a Guinness Book of World Record. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Well, um, in our businesses, one of the most important concepts is the word community. In the franchise world, we saw franchisors who treated their franchisees almost in a union sense like labor versus management, very authoritarian, do what we say, and uh, it, was, it was caustic. And we believe the, the the franchisee community was the biggest asset in terms of research and development and in the trench ideas on a day in, weekend, month in, month out basis. And so we, we said there's a community void in most franchise spaces, and we're going to disrupt the franchise world by building community as our best resource, and that those relationships would be dynamic. So we actually have a chief community officer at Retail Service Systems, Darren Conrad, and his sole job is to grow the community concept and continuously create things, whether they're training rewards trips, national conferences. He does a rugged road trip every year where he buys a transit van and decks it out for box drop, but then he drives it around and will visit 150 or so locations over a three-month time period and do a podcast out of the van, take people to dinner, give away T-shirts. And then at our national conference every year, uh, we give that van away in in a qualified drawing, which happened to be tied to that world record event. So that team created... Uh, a world record event that we did at TIAA Bank Field, I think on January the 5th this year. It was during our national conference for Box Drop, where we had a trade show for mattresses and furniture for about 550 people. And we were at the Hyatt in downtown Jacksonville, but we bust them all to the Jaguars stadium is where the Jaguars play. And we had a team there, and they. we have a new mattress line launching called Sleep to Win, Sleep with the number two and win. And mm-hmm. They did a mattress stack and uh, they had practiced it a few times. It wasn't raining and it wasn't windy. So we got, we got very fortunate in that regard, but yeah, they, we box drop team now owns the tallest mattress stack in the world. And we, we, we did it to set, to break and set a new Guinness world record, but it was a part of that community element because the whole organization owns that world record now. And it is a world record that we might get somebody might challenge us and beat it, but then we'll just keep beating it back. So it's one we're going to try to own forever.
2: Well, I think it's fair to say you are our first guest out of the 60 plus we have had that owns a Guinness Book of World Records. Mm-hmm. So there you go.
1: Nice. Of a lot of firsts, a lot of firsts today.
2: <laughs> so tell us a little bit about Box Drop and from what we understand is a high degree of referrals that come in. the business Uh, how is it growing how many locations do you have
0: a lot of people like to say they're disruptive but really what kind of fruit is on the tree and um in the box shop world you mentioned referrals so for three straight years now and we opened six to eight new locations a, a month um, it's been one of the fastest growing companies in America on the Inc. 5,000 list. Uh, this year, will make a fourth year in a row, and we grew 52% last year in a segment of the industry which is brick and mortar, not e-commerce, that was down about 15 to 20% last year, and we were up 52%. So, with with no e-commerce, but uh, the referrals for enterprise level franchises is generally about 23% of the new locations are referrals. For box drop, it's been seventy to seventy-two percent for three years straight, and that's just astronomical. So I, I think that's the biggest result of community in our organization, and we have a lot of second-generation business owners where families have multiple franchise locations now. But that that referral variable is just phenomenal, and kind of is the is the fruit on the tree of how disruptive we've been in that industry space, and the fact that in a brick-and-mortar play, we've figured out how to help small local business owners be as or more powerful than the the regional, super regional and national players that had dominated the the brick and mortar space for about 20 years. But Box Drop is just a a mattress and furniture uh, franchise in the $110 billion US home furnishing space. And we call it Box Drop because a lot of our products either are shaped like boxes or a container of products comes in a big box and you open it up and it's full of a bunch of other boxes and you put stuff together. But we also didn't want to have a name that was normal in the industry because we have a good sense of appreciation for SEO optimization. And if you put the word mattress in it, you're with a million other people. So when when you Google box drop, there wasn't anybody else using it. So we got to the top of the page pretty quick. And now we're established enough to where it stays that way. So it was just a creative thing using Google and, and a word that nobody in the industry was using. And, and uh, fortunately, our mission to empower entrepreneurs has worked in that space well, and our community concept was disruptive um, in the franchise furnishing world, which didn't have anything that wasn't plug and play, it could tell us. And it's it's grown. You know, first year, we ended with 17 locations in 2013. Last year, we ended with about 452. And... It's a, it's a good business that's growing fast with a lot of good coaches and a lot of good experts just focus on helping customers grow their businesses.
1: And, you know, Scott, before we get into some of the personal side, get to know you a little bit better, what was 2020 like for you and your businesses? What was different? What changed for the worse? What changed for the better? Would love to understand what 2020 was like for you.
0: Well, One of the reasons I I wanted to diversify companies was there were franchising was one way to empower entrepreneurs, helping entrepreneurs scale businesses was another way in a different category. And then real estate's just always an animal that you you can do things in, in a good market or a bad market. But it also enabled me to diversify. You know, a lot of people understand stock portfolios. You diversify your portfolios so you can manage ups and downs better. And we have multiple companies so we can do the same thing. You know, our media company, the RETV network, we didn't lay anybody off. We actually hired a couple of people this past year because the industry got hit hard. It definitely was down and harder to sell advertising and services. So in that space, that business was off and we had to invest in it to keep it above, to keep it, it it didn't do as well, but we didn't lay anybody off and that company didn't apply for funding or anything but that was the benefit of having other companies like like Retail Service Systems and Box Drop that did incredibly incredibly well, up 52%. So some pivoting is pivoting to play defense a little bit, and hopefully you can grow, but maybe you can't, but you can acquire talent. So we took an attitude of, okay, people are gonna be down, they're gonna be laying people off, they're gonna be selling equipment. We're gonna invest in that media business and we're gonna acquire some great talent, which we did and get some equipment at a discount. With Box Drop, we pivoted real quickly and created an appointment-centric, it was back in March, an appointment-centric scenario, and we had our legal team read every state, um, county, and city ordinance or regulation, because there was no federal, it was Ollie Act oxen free. Different counties and different cities and different states had all kinds of regulating changes. We read everyone that came to us, and we we created what would define each of our locations as essential for the services and the products they were providing. And we only had about 30 locations that had to close down out of, you know, 400 plus locations. So in some markets, we were kind of like the bubble gum shrimp company. We were the only player in town that was open and we gained market share like crazy that still continues today. So we were good at seeing around the corners. We also had BioPure, which is a, Microbial germ remediation company that we acquired in October of 18. But I had helped the young man start it about four years earlier. And we were way ahead of our time. But then COVID hit right when we were getting ready to franchise it. And it, it we opened 50 franchises last year very quickly. And it was just in the right place at the right time. I don't believe in luck, but I do believe in timing. And when you hit timing right, watch. I, I've seen people not too smart be good on timing and make a fortune. I've seen people who are really smart have terrible timing and lose a fortune. So timing is a beautiful ally. Mm-hmm. And for BioPure, we, we had a, a specialized um, electrostatic spraying application scenario that was highly advanced that allowed you to do, use chemicals more um, intelligently and, and with less volume. And then we had a very good chemical situation with an ingredient that was food grade safe, but yes, yet hospital grade disinfecting, but only active for 30 days once you entrapped it in a water molecule. So it's it's not a product that a Lysol or somebody would look to run through a Walmart or a six to 12 month shelf lifespan, but it's a very high level. It was really only being used in water systems and hospitals. But those companies all were ready to pivot our teams because we work with an attitude to innovate and disrupt ourselves every year. Our teams are always ready to pivot when chaos happens. And we actually like chaos because if you pay attention to chaos, there's usually equal or greater opportunity in chaos than when things are going really good.
1: Yeah, no, I agree. And I I love the the point on timing there, because, you know, we've had a lot of people on this podcast where, uh, you know, some businesses, maybe they were cinemas, uh, they're down, right? But then there were others where they just had a product where you drop, they come, they pick up your clothes, they wash them, they bring them back. Okay, a lot of, that's great. So a lot of places succeeded. Other companies that worked in digital transformation, Really, we're getting calls a lot to help those companies become more in the digital world, and that's why I wanted to ask you. And you hit the nail on the head because you said early on that for years you were helping franchises pivot and disrupt, and to transform. So I, I loved uh, hearing that, Scott. We have just a few minutes left. Uh, let's get to know you personally. What uh, what do you like to do for fun? And then I have a question about what football team you root for, because we were talking earlier about some of the, you know, your, your, your travel. So tell us what you like to do for fun. Hey,
0: my wife and I have um, some property, but we've got two big dogs. I, I love to do anything with Daphne. I mean, we're, we're business partners. We have a metric in our businesses that say in a marriage, two plus two doesn't equal, or one plus one doesn't equal two. It equals 11 which is five times greater than two. And we just work together so cohesively and I have a great respect for her and her for me to build companies together. But we do love to stream movies in the theater room and, and where you can just relax and kind of escape. We love to be out on the lake on a boat. It's, it's we, we take time to do that with our dogs together and walk the dogs. And we love to walk properties and talk about our adventures and. But really to tell you, I'm, I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur and thank God she is too, because building businesses, we've long made enough money to not have monetary goals. We, we like to help other people hit theirs, but we so love growing companies that it, it really is our hobby. Now, now, I don't wanna say that like we don't do anything and it'll lead to football. I learned as I studied the difference between millionaires and billionaires, there were a lot of differences. And a million dollars is about an 18 inch stack of $100 bills. A billion dollars is about 140 feet higher than the Washington Monument. So there's a big difference between a million and a billion. And I've gotten to meet and study Shad Khan with the Jaguars and be a part of some of their programs. We actually have uh Donovan Darius works for us in a training program we have and we've done lots of events at their stadiums but he's one of the billionaires that I studied I've been in his suite with him for football games oh nice and he's a cool multi-billionaire his his family moved here from Pakistan he was an engineer I think in Indiana is where he went to school met his wife there but he did an internship as an engineer with a company he ultimately bought because he needed more manufacturing when he created the continuous bumper with his first company, he started gate He ended up buying the company that he had interned with to have manufacturing capacity. But that was the first company that made him a billionaire. But in 2012, he bought the Jaguars for seven million. And even though they haven't won the most games or gone to a Super Bowl, uh, five years later, Forbes valued it at two billion. So he wow. created the billion dollar net worth in two companies and that's rare air but i did notice that he was one of the ones i studied to notice it a lot of times billionaires mark cuban is a great example like shah khan they will a lot of multimillionaires have very expensive hobbies and that's okay they earn the money they deserve it whether it's yachting or hunting or, or whatever billionaires often have a passion that would seem like a hobby but they turn it into another enterprise so they're, they're what, what is a hobby to most people becomes a business mm. to those billionaires, and end up taking what they know and make it very successful. So Mark Cuban is such a great example because everybody knows he's world renowned for screaming at referees and being at the games front and center and passionately being involved. So that's a hobby that he made into another business that probably, I don't know the financials there, but I'll bet he doesn't lose money with the Mavericks. Mm-hmm.
1: No, he definitely doesn't. And you know, so I take it it's the Jaguars. And if that's the case, you're gonna, you know, next season you're gonna enjoy watching uh that uh, Trevor Lawrence from the from the box with the owner.
0: I would say football in general. We've had internship programs at Clemson and had their football players at a store in South Carolina that my wife actually started years and years ago. Um so I'm I'm excited for that. We're retail service systems headquartered in Columbus. Our president of box drop, Jerry Williams, who was my chief operating officer. And I stepped down as the president a year and a half ago, and he he became the president. But his wife was one of only three Brutus Buckeyes that both went to Ohio State mm-hmm. and that were that were women. And she was the only one who won a national championship against Miami 10 or so years ago. Oh, so she's got her. They gave her her costume, her Brutus costume that hangs in their their entertainment room. No, that's awesome. Passionate Buckeye fans. They both went to Ohio State, but she's one of Shelly Myers' best friends, and they know the Myers and they've been to each other's houses. So he knew about the potential of it happening before before most people. And so we're excited about Urban and Shelly Myers being the coach
1: and maybe getting trevor that's that's cool that's cool i uh well yeah i wanted yeah, to I'm, find
0: out i'm a shad Khan fan so and in sports like yeah i was a philip rivers fan he's not going to get a super bowl but no. I, I generally follow the character of the players and have some favorite teams i'm a, I'm a jaguars fan because we have a national training center in jack jacksonville and i'm a fan of shad con so he's a winner. And sooner or later, I believe he'll make that program a winner, but I do like the Tennessee Titans too.
1: Yeah. You know, I, I figured I, didn't get the, the Jacksonville, I, you know, reference up front at first, but now I do. So I understand, but thank you so much, Scott, for sharing some time with us today. We really appreciate it. You know, I, I you know, a lot of firsts, great firsts here on the marketing stir podcast. We really appreciate it. Go out, you know, and uh, purchase the rugged entrepreneur, you know, Scott, that was it's been a pleasure thank you so much ladies and gentlemen again that is Scott Andrew the founder chairman of the board president of ceo and ceo of retail service systems rugged american spirits rugged spaces ladies and gentlemen i'm Vincent Petrofessa that's AJ Gupta this has been another episode of the marketing stir thanks and have a great day
0: thank you thanks for listening to the marketing stir podcast by Sturista please like, rate, and subscribe. If you're interested in being a guest on the podcast, email us at info at Thanks for listening.